is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. Longtime listeners may remember our many, many discussions in the late 1990s on U.S. economic sanctions imposed on Iraq, especially our conversations with three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee Kathy Kelly of what was then called Voices in the Wilderness and how they were openly violating sanctions by telling the U.S. State Department they were illegally crossing the border and bringing medical aid and toys for children into Iraq. As we learned back then, and we will discuss today, economic sanctions are imposed on often weaker countries by wealthy nations who are upset with the actions of those nations' governments. The idea is to apply pressure to the nation's economy against the offending government, possibly voting it out of office or overthrowing it and replacing it with one that conforms more to the desires and demands of the powerful. It's all in an attempt to find an alternative to the what is perceived as the far more brutal practice of military engagement in war. On top of that, when applying economic sanctions, you do not have to make a legal declaration of war and thereby circumventing all that entails legally. But what if, in fact, economic sanctions are more powerful than actually committing to a militarized war? What if those sanctions are so subtle that the citizens of the nation imposing the sanctions do not recognize the ongoing suffering being experienced by those who are living under what are often crushing sanctions? Sanctions that most directly affect the most vulnerable to economic deprivations, women and children. So how do we get to a point where economic sanctions, which can be far more deadly than war and have far uh, longer lingering effects, how did that become normalized? We will we'll try to figure that all out in a few when we speak with Nicholas Mulder, author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Nicholas is an assistant professor of modern European history at Cornell University and a regular contributor to foreign policy and the nation. You can follow Nicholas on Twitter at NJ. T as in Thomas, Mulder, M-U-L-D-E-R. I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Captooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, yesterday, uh, Richard told us about how that during the holidays, he found himself down a rabbit hole while watching a Lee Marvin movie from 1972 called Prime Cut, where Lee Marvin plays a mob enforcer. The movie also features a young sissy Spacek in what is one of her very first feature-length film appearances. The movie was shot in Chicago, where Marvin drives by a statue near the expressway of an old-timey police officer dressed in a 19th-century cop uniform with a bobby-like hat, a spot that Richard has driven by often, but he has never seen the statue, which led Richard to discover that it is the Haymarket Monument honoring the police for whatever reason as they killed unarmed protesters in what is known as the Haymarket Massacre. The monument has been vandalized so many times it has been repeatedly moved and is now right in front of Chicago Police Department headquarters. Alex, how were your holidays? Did you spend any time in rabbit holes while you were off? I uh, made a baked Alaska. That's spent something. some time with my family. Fought a dog. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, fought a German Shepherd. Oh, that's good. How'd that go? Uh, it's a crazy situation to be in. Well, it took, took my kid and my wife just walking down the down the street in Rogers Park, and a German Shepherd busted out of a house and uh, ran down the street and sank its fangs into my dog's neck. So me and my wife had to fight a dog while my child watched. And he's just at the age where he's making memories that are like, you know, when you talk about, oh, what was your first memory? 
really worried my child's first memory is going to be me wailing on a German shepherd <laughs> right before Christmas. Well, you could have taught him. It could have been a lesson learning moment in time because as a friend of mine who uh, used to work at the Anti-Cruelty Society told me who would go out and pick up pit bulls, I asked him, what should I do if a pit bull charges me? And he said, give him your weak arm and then start beating him with your strong arm. So see, it could have been a time to teach a lesson to your child. My dog is doing fine. Uh, she got to sit on the couch all Christmas uh, being hand-fed painkillers inside hot dogs, which is like, damn, is that the dream or not? <laughs> ah, the life of a dog. The only rabbit hole I found myself in was the same old, same old rabbit hole I find myself in while traveling during time off, and that is local newspapers. In the Sunday Free Press I mentioned earlier this week that had the front page story on the ongoing practice of grave robbers digging up indigenous burial grounds. Yeah, that that still happens. They also had an article on how the city of Detroit, when the banks closed during the Depression, printed its own money. And while it does look like money, the face of the bill has a hundred plus word essay or statement that is not legible. And I've been trying to figure out what it says, which is more difficult for me as I'm legally blind. But it, it looks like a lengthy qualifier explaining when and how the money could be used. So that's where I found myself over the holidays. But more importantly than Richards, Lee, Marvin, or my Detroit script rabbit hole, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what would make your life 1% better? 1%, but not two. What would make your life 1% better? The person with, that's in no relation to the 1%, correct? You're, I don't want to make anybody confused with that. That you're not trying to ask people how to become one of the 1% better. That's a way better idea. I'm wasting my time trying to get 1% better. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bags, the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to This Is hell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's shows when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff's forbidden words for this year are all numbers. Go figure. His forbidden words are all numbers. We'll be finding out what Jeff means by that. Later on this week, Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with uh, let's see, with Nicholas on his book, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a tool of modern war you can email us your thoughts on the show your suggestions for guests and topics and whatever you want us to share with the listening audience by emailing us at chuck at this is hell.com messaging us via facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or tweeting at us at this is hell radio we got an email from chris t not christ just to make sure everybody understands it's chris space t who writes, Hi, Chuck. Happy holidays. Hope you're enjoying them and the bronchials are better. I recommend The Dawn of Everything and wondered if you're going to interview David Graeber's co-author about it. It would also be nice to hear a chat about David Graeber again. Have a good one. 
all this, all the best, Chris. Thanks, Chris, and we hope you enjoyed your holidays as well. Despite them just ending, they already feel like they are in the distant past. As for interviewing David Graeber's co-author, David Wengro, both Alex and I have contacted him or his publisher, and the only response Alex or I have received uh, was back in November when Alex was told by the publisher that David Wengro's interview schedule was completely full. We are going to try again, but we do not have high hopes this is going to work out in any way, which is a shame because David Graeber was on This Is Hell twice. And you can hear both those interviews right now for free by searching on Graeber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R, at thisishell.com. As for my bronchials, as you call them, Chris, I'm better, kind of. I thought it was pretty much over my two-month battle with horrible horrible, awful bronchitis until immediately following our first show back, our first show this week, when my throat was very sore for a few hours right afterwards. So I'm still in a wait-and-see situation, and if my throat is that sore again, I may have to go see my doctor again. But thanks for the concern, Chris. Paul S. also emailed us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Paul writes, Hi, Chuck and the gang. I hate that band. Thanks for all the hard work and amazing interviews you've put out over the last year. Complete ambivalence over your health and safety from your bosses and pro-boss union leaders can be extremely alienating, but shows like yours are powerful reminders to your working-class listeners that they are not the ones at fault for their own exploitation. Rather, it's the fault of those perpetuating our capitalist system. That's why I never hesitate to recommend your show to friends and co-workers who have felt increasingly disaffected, depressed, confused, and alienated throughout the pandemic, who are realizing that things around us are falling apart but can't pinpoint exactly how or why. With that said, I think my favorite episode from 2021 is the one I recommend the one I recommend the most to my friends, which is Kentucky Opioid War Dialectics with Terrence Ray. The opioid war is a scourge rarely talked about in media and politics precisely for the reasons you and Terrence outlined in your interview. It's the confluence of several issues affecting the greater working class that those in power would rather sweep under the rug than actively do anything to solve a deindustrialized, financialized economy, leaving huge swaths of the country without any sustainable job opportunities, a completely defunded social safety net system that leaves struggling people destitute, a lecherous healthcare system that prioritizes shareholder profits over positive health outcomes, and a police state designed not only to criminalize and control the poor and people of color, but to also grimly serve as our country's only significant job programs are to build and staff jails in the same economically starved communities, thus making them economically dependent on their own oppression. In short, the interview with Terrence Ray neatly ties together just a few of the many ways this is hell. Thanks again for all you do, and I can't wait to tune in in 2022. As a Chicago native, I'm selfishly looking forward to some more local content, like your interview with Martin Billheimer the other day. Happy New Year, Paul. First, Paul, the interview uh, that Paul mentions at the end of his email, the talk with Martin Billheimer, was on his book, uh, Mother Chicago, about juvenile institutionalization in the early 20th century and institutionalization when it came to, you know, like pandemics, like the like tuberculosis. 
Secondly, on the working class not being the ones who are at fault for their own exploitation. This is something that came up last month when we spoke with Neil Villelli about his book, Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism and the Production of Uselessness, which, again, you can find at thisishell.com for free by searching on Villelli, V-A-L-L-E-L-L-Y. This is something that often comes up in the media, with pundits blaming the working class for voting against their own self-interest, as if their exploitation is self-inflicted, as if their exploitation is their own damn fault, thus alleviating any responsibility of the greater system within which we find ourselves. While we have had many guests on the show over the past several years and longer, pointing out our complicity in our own exploitation, as well as our contributions to climate change and the perpetuation of institutional racism and sexism, Neil argued that in order for us to survive in our current situation and conditions, we must participate within this exploitative system that is imposed upon us and surrounds us every day, a system that hopefully provides things like a roof over our head, clothes on our back, and food on our tables. That is not our fault. However, recognizing how we do contribute to it is likely a first step to possibly dismantling the exploitative nature of the system that is imposed upon us due to... No fault of our own. Don't blame your friend or family member. The problem is much bigger than that, and blaming individuals misses that far bigger picture. Finally, on our interview with Terrence Ray last year about his article at The Baffler on opioids, I agree, Paul, that was one of my favorites, too, and lots of listeners echoed that opinion. Again, you can find it at thisishell.com, or you can simply search Terrence Ray and This Is Hell using any search engine, and it should pop up right there at the top of your search. We'll have more of your listener feedback following our conversation with Nicholas Mulder on his book, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what would make your life 1% better? Staring into the abyss, so you don't have to. This is hell. Exactly how did we get to a place where economic warfare applied during war became so normalized and tolerated that it's employed during what was once known as peacetime. Why is it that the impact of such sanctions are so often ignored? Why do we allow what would have been considered an act of war to not be an act of war? How did we go from turning an economic weapon during wartime into a more subtle and powerful weapon being employed at any given time without any declaration of war? Here to help us have a better understanding of economic sanctions, their origination and history, and what they mean for our world today, we are very pleased to have as our guest, Nicholas Mulder, author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Welcome to This is Hell, Nicholas. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me on the show. Nicholas is an assistant professor of modern European history at Cornell University and a regular contributor to Foreign Policy and the Nation. You can follow Nicholas on Twitter at NJT Mulder. You write that the collapse of the global political and economic order in the 1930s and the outbreak of a Second World War have made it easy to dismiss the League of Nations as a utopian enterprise. But this was not the view of its founders, who believed they had equipped the organization with a new and powerful kind of coercive instrument for the modern world. That instrument was sanctions, described in 1919 by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson as something more tremendous than war. The threat was an absolute isolation that brings a nation to its senses, just as suffocation removes from the individual all inclinations to fight. Apply this economic, peaceful, uh, silent, deadly remedy, and there will be no need for force. It's a terrible remedy. It does not cost a life outside of the nation boycotted, but it brings a pressure upon that nation, which in my judgment, my judgment, no modern nation could resist. So, Nicholas, 
how powerful are economic sanctions? Is economic isolation, more importantly, I guess the question is, is economic isolation from the outside world an act of nonviolence in your opinion? It's a good question. And I think the first thing to observe is that as the world economy has become more globalized over the last two centuries, people have become much more dependent on trade, on exchanging goods, getting food, and also deriving income right, from interacting and trading with others. And that's really uh, the underlying assumption for people who propose sanctions. That's one of the animating thoughts of the architects of sanctions. But today, I think that the often invoked nostrum that we live in a very globalized world and particularly with things like you know the supply chain crisis going on today people are very fearful of all of a sudden no longer having access to various goods and comforts that sustain them and their way of life and it's really that modern feeling of interconnectedness that's given sanctions and the threat of sanctions their particular force so you also point out that in the first decade of the league's existence, the instrument described by Wilson was often referred to in English as the economic weapon. In French, the Geneva-based organization's other official language, it was known as l'arme économique. Its designation as a weapon pointed to the wartime practice of blockade that had inspired it. So why is an economic weapon inspired by wartime practice, the blockade, seen as nonviolent when it had proven to be very have very violent outcomes on the nations and the citizens that were blockaded. So that's really the, the main thing that I try to understand in writing this book. And one of the things that I found is that that understanding of sanctions today as nonviolence or as an, an alternative to war really took quite a long time to take hold. And as you mentioned, in the interwar period itself, after World War One, for decades, it was actually referred to as the economic weapon. And uh, it would be quite a, a useful thing, I think, to bring that term back even uh, today to, to uh, highlight some of its, its coercive aspects. But the reason also that they thought of it as a weapon at the time was that it had emerged during the war itself. So that really goes back to the particular tactics that the allies employed in World War I in order to win the war against their opponents, the central powers, that was mainly Germany and Austria-Hungary, but also the Ottoman Empire. And the strategy that they devised and implemented was to blockade those countries uh, in Central Europe and the Middle East from interaction uh, and, and prevent their trade and exchange with the rest of the world. And they created uh, entire new bureaucracies. So both Britain and France ended up creating ministries of blockade. They appointed ministers for them, bureaucrats, people who were gathering intelligence, and they steadily increased their control over a lot of important levers of the world economy. And the reason that they were able to do that, particularly the British who took a leading role in it, was that they were at the time the country that was really central to economic globalization. If you think about the power that the United States has today with uh, the Treasury, Wall Street, its important uh, dollarized financial markets, and the dollar as a world reserve currency, right? It also gives institutions like the Federal Reserve today enormous power over the world economy. The equivalent of that in the early 20th century was the city of London, and particularly the British Treasury and the city of London. So they began to use that power 
in World War I in coordination with their allies against the Central Powers. And it took quite a while for them to expand this whole system because before the war, there had been pretty much unrestricted globalization and very little politicization of those trade relations. It was very normal for Germans and British merchants to be interacting. All of a sudden in the war, that became impossible. And uh, the effects of that system were the model for economic sanctions. And uh, one of the things that was very important in affecting that transformation was that many of the people who ran these blockade ministries during World War I later on became the founding officials and the founding internationalists who went to Geneva and who created the League of Nations. And it was really this transfer of people and of expertise, you know, as they say, personnel is policy that created the, the process in which sanctions were transferred from a war fighting weapon to now the new disciplinary mechanism for uh, really a first in world history, an international organization that almost all sovereign nations could become part of. And uh, then uh, a new challenge emerged, and that was basically how to make this wartime practice seen as an accepted thing that you could do in peacetime. So how effective is renaming them sanctions and misleading the public into believing they are not a weapon targeting the entire public and not only the military or military objectives? What would happen to the popular view of sanctions if the media did start calling them economic warfare instead? So initially, actually, these internationalists who moved from the allied countries to Geneva and who remained in in Europe in the 1920s and 30s to try and use sanctions as a, as a tool for promoting peace, came up with a theory for how economic pressure was supposed to work. And this is an important one because they were trying to mobilize the memory of this very devastating blockade in World War I, which in Central Europe had killed many hundreds of thousands of people. There's still some debate among historians about exactly how many, and it's quite difficult to do that because you have to measure excess mortality. And of course, we never know exactly how many people are killed by sanctions regimes even, even today. Um, but at the time, the, their hope was actually that you could use this memory of suffering uh, in order simply to scare people with the threat of sanctions and that you then wouldn't uh, actually have to impose them. So it was effectively to try and uh, implement a threat to launch a sort of threatening gesture really at the boundary of war and peace. And hopefully uh, in, in their hope, at least, this would lead to a moderation of behavior by the country that they were launching the threat against, and they wouldn't actually have to implement them. And in the interwar period, this memory of starvation was actually still so recent in people's minds, particularly if you lived anywhere in Europe or in the, in the Middle East, that it was quite a potent thing to do. And in fact, there were two crises in the 1920s, they're now kind of forgotten, but were very important diplomatic and international crises at the time that were actually dissolved uh, and, 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 and resolved by the use of a sanctions threat, so without any imposition of sanctions. And today, that sort of way of thinking about sanctions as basically a deterrent, something that you threaten but then don't actually use, it's no longer that common, mainly because we have lowered the threshold for sanctions, sanctions use. So we actually apply them very quickly, but we no longer really think that the threat of them has that much 
value actually uh, to, uh, today there might be some cases where people present it that way but i actually think that we've actually gone gotten so used to just using them immediately that this older conception of sanctions as a deterrent uh, has been kind of lost and you point out that emergence signaled the rise of a distinctively liberal approach to world conflict. That is the emergence of economic sanctions, one that is very much alive and well today. Sanctions shifted the boundary between war and peace, produced new ways to map and manipulate the fabric of the world economy, changed how liberalism conceived of coercion, and altered the course of international law. How are sanctions a distinctively liberal approach to conflict? One of the things that these internationalists in the early 20th century tried to solve was a really an age-old problem, which is how you can stop war from happening in the world. And it's important to be a little bit charitable to them, because I think that at, at may, many of them uh, probably weren't uh, incredible uh, foreign policy hawks, and certainly saw what had happened in World War I, this horrendous conflict that had killed millions of people as, as a tragedy, and they really sincerely wanted to prevent it. But uh, this uh, development of blockade techniques gave them a new tool with which to pursue that. And the, the distinctively liberal thing about it is that, of course, liberals at the time were very focused already on economic interdependence. Uh, if uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with this book, one of the uh, most widely read books in English right before World War I was written by a British and American journalist called Norman Angel, and it was uh, called Europe's Optical Illusion or The Great Illusion. Uh, it was kind of the Thomas Friedman, the world is flat, pro-globalization story uh, and, and Bible of its time. And what Angel argued was that the world in uh, the second decade of the 20th century, so roughly 1909, 1910, around that time that he wrote it, the world had become so interconnected that it would really be foolish to continue to fight wars. He said any government that really understands how deeply dependent everyone and all countries in the world are on each other would really think twice before they would use this very old-fashioned imperialist self-aggrandizing method of trying to actually resolve disputes by force. He said, the more that we accelerate globalization, the further away from that sort of danger we're going to get. And in that sense, Angel Wright has often gone down in history as someone who didn't see the storm brewing, who is kind of um, saying these things right on the cusp of another terrible war. But in many ways, what's interesting about sanctions is that people continue to hold on to one core belief that he had, which is that economic motivations drive human behavior. And Angel thought that economic globalization was so self-evidently successful that people would simply observe the world and see that it didn't make sense to fight people you were dependent on. But of course, World War I did happen. And so what the sanctionists came to believe was that he had been uh, right, but simply wrong about the means necessary. So in a way, what they came up with was this, this these new sets of blockade techniques, sanctions. And what they would do was to actually manipulate trade uh, still work on people's economic and material motivation. It's a homo economicus, right? This idea that human beings, generally speaking, balance gains and losses and that they try and maximize 
uh, utility and economic gain for themselves. And that's a very modern materialist, but also in a sense, a, a liberal uh, utilitarian way of, of viewing the world. And this is what the sanctionists tried to make effective. They tried to devise appeals to the material interests of peoples. And they said, well, if we can't expect them to sort of understand this intuitively, as Angel had hoped, at least we can threaten to sever them from, from the world economy. And then probably it'll dawn on them that they have to moderate their behavior, that they shouldn't embark on war. So this is kind of the liberal philosophy behind using sanctions. It's to act on people's material interests and thereby to try and dissuade them from doing something uh, uh, political, something aggressive. And in that sense, uh, it's seen from, from the liberal point of view, aggression is irrational because uh, the pursuit of gain and the pursuit of material benefits uh, is rational and it's also coded and understood as peaceful. And that's really the kind of liberal uh, way of thinking that uh, underpins the use of sanctions in this period. This idea of homo economicus has come up on our show dozens of times over the past, I don't know, 20 years uh, when it comes to neoliberalism. So did sanctions in any way foreshadow neoliberalism? That's a very interesting question, Chuck. And actually, interestingly, uh, there were there was a very big political controversy about sanctions, uh, as, as you will have guessed in this period and as I document in the book. Uh, because the attempt to move this technique that had originated in wartime policy into the realm of peacetime and make it a kind of peacetime uh, legitimate practice was extremely controversial. So there were a whole number of groups, uh, uh, big grassroots social movements, feminist groups, pacifist organizations, veterans associations who were horrified by the war they had suffered at the front, um, all of whom were against it. But one other group that was actually very against it were businessmen and were uh, corporate interests. And interestingly, in this early formative period of sanctions, you find the private sector and, and business and financial interests on both sides of the debate. You have some of them who believe that it's good to use these measures in order to facilitate peace, but many of them actually also oppose them. And they wanted to go back to this old pre-1914 world where you could trade with anyone. Uh, trade was essentially unpolitical. It was uh, neutral and there were no restrictions on it. And they saw sanctions as quite a dangerous thing because once you start to restrict countries' ability to trade with each other, uh, governments might also acquire the power to intervene in private property, to put higher taxes on them. So they wanted to basically keep the genie of sanctions in the bottle because they were worried what would happen if it was let out and they were, were worried that it would affect their interests. And they still continue to believe in this older liberal approach that you uh, simply try and maximize trade and that in itself will make people more pacific. So there are interestingly uh, people who we would now recognize as neoliberals on both sides of this debate. Some of them embrace the new technique, but others are actually interested in kind of getting politics out of international economics again, making sure that you can simply move anything across borders, there will be no interference. And I think to this day, actually, for, uh, sanctions are still uh, something that is quite deeply contested in the private sector. And uh, you'll definitely find quite a lot of opponents of sanctions um, in, in those circles as well. So were sanctions seen as anti-imperialist and did they end up being anti-imperialist? So 
at the time, the countries that were using sanctions, at, that were developing them, were themselves major empires. I think that's a very important fact from which to start. Britain and France in the early 20th century were globe-spanning intercontinental empires. The British Empire actually reached the largest territorial extent in its history in 1919, so one year after the Paris Peace Treaties and the end of World War I. And that also very much shaped the way that they thought about how they would use sanctions. In the 19th century, Britain and France in particular had grown very used to using gunboats and all sorts of interventions in order to protect their interests around the world, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. And as they built their empires, they would very often use large amounts of coercive force against other countries. So this came very naturally to them, actually. For them, sanctions were simply the kind of internationalized version of what they had been doing independently already for quite a while. But it, this also really marked the deployment of sanctions because it meant that in the 1920s and 30s, if you were a small country and you didn't have a great power backer on what was then uh, the major organ of the League of Nations, it was known as the Council, but it's, it operates effectively like the United Nations Security Council today, sort of small group of powerful countries at the top who have veto power uh, within the organization. At that time, it was known as the Council. So on the Council of the League, Britain, France, Japan, and Italy initially, and then later uh, Germany and the Soviet Union were also in and then out again for brief periods. But Britain and France were really the two mainstays of the Council. And they've made it very obvious that if you were a small country, you were much uh, more likely to have sanctions launched against you simply because you didn't have any backers. And they also saw aggression and the tendency to go to war as predominantly something that small countries were likely to do. Uh, this was obviously a very a prejudiced way of looking at the world, but particularly in regions like the Middle East and the Balkans, they associated the nations that were there with aggressive temperaments. Uh, they believed also that the Serbs, due to their role in the outbreak of World War I, for example, were innately uh, more aggressive than others and that they should be sort of brought to heel and uh, have some sort of sense imposed on them by the threat of economic isolation. So in that sense, you could see that sanctions were uh, in a way of continuing an older pattern of imperialism. And also later on in the 1930s, there were many attempts to use sanctions in East Asia, uh, particularly uh, against the Japanese, but before that also even uh, in, in China, which at the time was also still very much uh, an imperial zone. So in the 1920s and 30s, on the whole, to answer your question, I would say sanctions tended to be a, a quite imperial way of acting on the world. But uh, this did begin to change over time as uh, some of these countries also managed to acquire more sovereignty. They stood up for their own independence and they began to be able to use the League of Nations and later on the United Nations to protect themselves against some of these measures as well. So it, it changed over time. We are speaking with Nicholas Mulder, author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. You can follow Nicholas on Twitter at NJT Mulder. You also write how the emergence of economic sanctions, quote, marked the international emergence of a new form of liberalism, one that worked through a technical and administrative apparatus of lawyers, diplomats, military experts, and economists. These officials work first in wartime and then 
after 1919 had far-reaching effects in a period when European governments granted suffrage and extended welfare and social insurance sanctions made them see other populations as suitable targets of coercive pressure. So was this process any less democratic than what it had been in the past? Is this technocracy in any way a substitute for democracy? It is in many ways. And one of the reasons for that was that there was at the time a a, a lot of uh, many difficult challenges that had to be overcome in uh, implementing this technique. As I said, there were grassroots movements that were resisting quite strongly the the use of sanctions, particularly right after World War I, a whole array uh, of uh, liberal, uh, socialist, feminist, pacifist organizations that really protested the extension of the wartime blockade in peacetime. And this continued, so it became quickly clear to the governments that wanted to use sanctions that they would really have to come up with a better way of legitimating this tactic. And over time, they started to mobilize civil society groups. And in the 20s and 30s, particularly, the groups that had first opposed the use of sanctions came now to think of sanctions actually as something that could be beneficial, but only if they were used by the most legitimate form of organization by the League of Nations. And this meant that there was now a much more public discussion about the use of sanctions. And they were also thought to be restraining uh, against potential aggressors. And especially in the 1930s, as you see the rise of fascism, many of these groups, uh, leftists, uh, but also liberals, who had first still been kind of uncomfortable with the use of sanctions, turn into a much more pro-sanctions direction. And by the 1930s, when you have Hitler and Mussolini threatening uh, the established order and and peace in Europe, many of these groups have come around to actually using sanctions. And uh, one of the uh, famous cases there is in 1935 and 1936, when Mussolini's fascist Italy invades Ethiopia. And this was a case where an African country that was a member state of the League of Nations invoked uh, its uh, rights under the League of Nations to have a sanctions procedure implemented against its aggressor, against fascist Italy. And this was actually the first international economic sanctions regime in history. And what's more, what's also important about that is how they worked temporarily and then what the response was of fascist Italy, of Nazi Germany, as well as Japan. And we'll get to that in a moment. You quote William Arnold Forster, a British blockade administrator and ardent internationalist, admitting that during the Great War, quote, we tried just as the Germans tried to make our enemies unwilling that their children should be born. We tried to bring about such a state of destitution that those children, if born at all, should be born dead. So from the very beginning, were economic sanctions understood to be targeting children? Do And do they target children any more or less than war does? Because as we always know that during wartime, the number of people who die who are civilians, who are non-combatants, always outnumbers those who are engaged in war. Yes, well, that quote particularly, right, uh, from one of the people who was administering the blockade in World War One, it really, it really gives you pause, and uh, it's a difficult question. But one of the things that I've really found as I 
research this period and and read uh, uh, about what people at the time were thinking about this question was that they were very, very aware of the effects of mass destitution and externally imposed destitution on their societies. And one of the things that I think we've forgotten since, because in the uh, between us and the First World War, of course, World War II happened, which is an even bigger, more destructive, violent and murderous conflict than the First World War was. But as a result, I think we've forgotten that in the first few decades, of the 20th century, if you had asked people what was the major weapon that had killed actually the most civilians, this was not one of the things that we would associate with modern total war now, uh, things like air power, mass bombardment, or uh, poison gas, or these sorts of things. Um, in World War One, it was actually blockade. Uh, bombardment and air power was very little used in World War One. Uh, maybe uh, a few uh, uh, hundred or in the low thousands of, of casualties. Uh, poison gas was used extensively on the battlefield, but never in World War One against civilians. So the main experience, really, of civilian mass death among most of the combatants in Europe and the Middle East was starvation due to blockade. And it's really this memory that I think at the time was foremost in people's minds. Um, since then, uh, I also think that there has been a, a change, of course, these, these uh, big cases of sanctions regimes that have affected uh, women and children, particularly, uh, were always a very big object of criticism. And in the 20s, in the book also, I, I try to show how feminist organizations in particular are very vocal opponents of this. They try and uh, come, out, come up with all sorts of carve-outs and exemptions for civilians and for humanitarian shipments. But the sanctionists have a, a powerful counterattack against this because they say that this weakens the deterrent effect. So the only way that you can actually use sanctions as a threat that is convincing is if they are totally unlimited and indiscriminate. And if you start to carve them out, you weaken them, you actually make the deterrent effect less. So this is really the debate that emerges in the interwar period. And I think actually you can still see that today in cases like Afghanistan right, right now where there's a terrible starvation going on this winter. But uh, at the same time, the US government continues to insist that it needs uh, to keep pressure on the Taliban, even though it's withdrawn from the country. And uh, the humanitarians have a very uh, steep hill to climb in trying to organize aid to Afghanistan right now. And you point out when you were talking about feminism, you point out that the women's movement played an active role in the international history of sanctions, largely opposing and moderating their force, although also sometimes supporting them as preferable to war. So are economic sanctions not seen as a weapon of war because they target far more vulnerable women and children than they do men, especially men in uniform? That's a, an interesting thing to think about a little bit because it actually really goes into the cultural norms surrounding war and for much of the 18th and 19th and even early 20th centuries war was considered to be purely something that was fought between men and between men in uniform and also professionalized men in a sense it was something that was a profession and a career that you could devote your, uh, oneself to and at the time Interestingly, there are many critics across the political spectrum of sanctions, but some of them are also conservatives, and they're uh, kind of from conservative army backgrounds. And, and their attack and criticism of sanctions is that war is supposed to be an official rule-bound affair only among men and only 
in the field and it should not involve civilian society. It shouldn't involve women and children. And I think you can see that this is also where total war in the early 20th century as it erupted really broke with pretty long-standing norms uh, of, of who exactly was considered innocent. In this modern uh, way of thinking about society, everyone who works, everyone who is productive in society, no matter their gender, or their age, uh, everyone will uh, be potentially uh, a resource that will strengthen the nation. And in the mind of the sanctionists, this also meant that previous uh, categories, people, uh, categories of people who had previously been kept out of the crosshairs of armed conflict were now legitimate targets. We were discussing the relationship between sanctions and imperialism before. Are economic sanctions a type of ongoing colonialism or neo-colonial control by the major economic powers? So, as I mentioned in the interwar period, sanctions were very much used by out-and-out empires, right? This was, right? There's no question that they were imperialist in even the most basic sense of the, the term because the countries that were using them were empires. And actually, whenever you hear the phrase League of Nations, it's quite useful to, to substitute it in your mind with League of Empires and Nations because only some of the countries in it were what we would now recognize as modern sovereign nation states. Many of them were intercontinental empires and this really affected how the economic weapon was used. But um, today, I think the, the situation has changed. And a large part of that story has to do with the rise of American power in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1930s and 40s. And there's an interesting inversion that took place there as well, because throughout all this period that I've just discussed, the main proponents of sanctions, the main sanctionists were Europeans. They were British, French, occasionally also uh, Italians, Germans, uh, people from smaller European countries, people in the League of Nations, they were the main supporters of the economic weapon. And against this, there were some people in the United States who supported it. Wilson, of course, was a prominent one, but as uh, your listeners will know, um, the uh, Treaty of Versailles was not ratified by the United States and the United States never joined the League of Nations. So throughout the interwar period, actually, the United States remains kind of on the sidelines um, and it's only in the 1930s under FDR that they begin to take a more active role. And throughout this period as well, American presidents and much of the American elite continues to reject sanctions. Herbert Hoover, president from uh, 1929 to 1933, and before that already a very prominent American member of several cabinets and, and a kind of internationalist and technocrat, he actually even went so far as to suggest that sanctions were simply un-American. America was a country that was better than the old world of European empires, and it should also embrace its traditional uh, role of neutrality in warfare, something that Americans uh, had been very proud of in the late 18th and throughout the 19th century. And Hoover really advocated that the United States carry that forward. But actually something important changed in the 1930s after FDR came to power. And one of the things that happened is, of course, that the European state system began to implode. So fascist powers emerged. They started to really push at the limits of the post-World War I order. And ultimately, there was another world war that broke out. And the United States, 
ended up playing a very major role in uh, the world that emerged in its aftermath. And that's also something that you can see today in an interesting sense. Um, the roles from the interwar period have now kind of inverted. Today, actually, the United States, of course, is the main user of sanctions, certainly the most enthusiastic and, and frequent user of them, not the only one, but uh, the most frequent one. And it's mainly countries in Europe uh, and elsewhere that oftentimes protest against sanctions that want to either have some kind of neutrality or a kind of outsider position that don't want to necessarily join US sanctions against Iran or against Russia or China. So in an interesting way, the roles between uh, countries, between the US and Europe particularly, have really inverted. Of course, what's remained largely the same is that it continues to be much easier to impose sanctions on smaller countries in the global south uh, than uh, um, it is to use them against major countries in the global north. And you point out that sanctions played an important role in the crisis of globalization that erupted in the 1930s. The breakdown of the post-World War I order had many causes, waning enthusiasm for democracy, the popularity of revolutionary communism, and rising fascism, the shock of the Great Depression, and the failure of disarmament efforts. Given these headwinds, it is hardly surprising that stability was shattered and the world slid toward a new global conflict. Do you see that history, influenced by sanctions, in any way repeating itself today? One interesting thing about the interwar period, and this is something that I explore in the book, is that one process that emerged is, I think, what you can call a, a kind of sanctions autarky spiral. So as sanctions began to be used more and more and began to be threatened more and more, the tendency towards promoting economic self-sufficiency, becoming self-sufficient economically uh, or autarkic, um, promoting autarky, became much more popular against countries because they thought that it was possible to escape from the threat of blockade by simply starting to produce things yourself or uh, by getting uh, countries in your sphere of influence from which you can get all the resources that you need. And there's certainly some overlap and there's certainly some similarity between processes uh, uh, that we saw then and, and, and what we see in the world today. I don't know, uh, of course, and I don't want to make any predictions about what the outcome will be, but you can very clearly see that countries under sanctions today are trying various techniques to try and escape from them. And that uh, can take a variety of forms. It can mean moving to alternate forms of energy generation, but also uh, getting preferential trade relationships with neighboring countries, because it's much more difficult oftentimes to sever relationships with countries that are directly adjacent to each other uh, than uh, to uh, several countries, uh, several relations with the country all the way around the world. So again, I think you can start to see in this period, and of course, again, it's not only because of sanctions, uh, it's also due to COVID and due to uh, increasing trade wars, etc. Again, you can see these, these tensions emerging in globalization and sanctions uh, then as now are actually accelerating some of that disintegration and some of that economic nationalism and economic self-sufficiency.
when it comes to sanctions being applied against Mussolini for the and fascist Italy for the invasion of Ethiopia. You have sanctions as applied by the League of Nations. Deterrence broke down when fascist Italy risked confrontation by invading Ethiopia in 1935. Internationalist enforcement swung into action to implement Article 16 of the League Covenant. For the first time, economic sanctions were deployed at scale as three-quarters of the world's states severed most of their commercial ties with Italy. The sanctions failed to hurt Benito Mussolini's regime quickly enough to save Ethiopia from conquest and occupation. Italy had prepared to withstand shortages. Nevertheless, Mussolini had to launch a campaign for a comprehensive anti-sanctions autarky, that is, economic self-reliance, to survive financial attrition. Sanctions so depleted Italy's economic strength that Il Duce could not consider another offensive war for several years. And you add the League's sanctions were seriously worrying to other revisionist states. Officials in Nazi Germany became convinced they would be the next target. In early 1936, a regime-wide drive began to achieve blockade resilience under the four-year plan. Japan, too, started to worry about its prospects for regional autonomy. To both Berlin and Tokyo, territorial expansion became a way to enhance self-reliance, mobilize popular support, and retain strategic independence. So did sanctions in any way inadvertently lead to increased militarism that caused World War II? Is the axis, if you will, an outcome of coercion and the fear of coercion through economic sanctions? So sanctions definitely contributed to that process of militarization. And that's one of the things that I uh, try and explore very much in the book, because we, of course, know about the other causes. I wouldn't want to say that it's uh, the the main or the only cause, uh, but we know the the other larger causes already, right? These were uh, regimes that had uh, strongly militaristic and nationalistic ideologies, uh, were adherents of fascism, and of course there had been a Great Depression, so there was already uh, a, a very strong tendency towards protectionism. But in such a very fragile and uh, weakened world economy, when countries start to be threatened by economic uh, destitution and, and particularly severing relations for political ends that further accelerates and further um, uh, promotes this disintegration rather than strengthening it. So if you want to think of this uh, in, in, in uh, kind of alternate uh, terms, if you want to think about what could have been done, what was needed at that time was a, a program of coordinated economic expansion and trying to stimulate uh, increased uh, prosperity around the world. And that started to happen slowly, but it, it happened far too late. And in the meantime, this threat of blockade and of sanctions definitely encouraged these autarkic tendencies, uh, the tendencies towards economic nationalism. And interestingly, some of the people who uh, we mentioned previously, like Norman Angel, the, the big prophet of liberal uh, interdependence and liberal globalization, he had already warned as early as 1915 that what could happen in a world dominated by sanctions is that you would start to see, in his words, uh, a competition for national uh, self-sufficiency. And that's exactly what, what took place. And it's interesting that today, when we talk about sanctions, we generally have lost the sense that there's any global economic or political risk in using them. Uh, because the countries, oftentimes, that the United States uses sanctions against are not as strong as the United States. So I think that's created the mistaken impression that in the long run, there are very few costs to this. Uh, what the interwar period shows is that as you 
start targeting larger and larger countries, these countries are more able to resist. They are more able to take countermeasures and the risks do become uh, bigger. So um, I don't really want to say that sanctions in themselves uh, were the thing that created the axis because the axis also was very much uh, an alliance of opportunity, of convenience. There were also serious differences between these countries and it was they were more united by what they were against, which was the, the peace treaties after World War One. They wanted to revise those and expand their territory. But the threat of blockade definitely brought them uh, closer to each other. And they also sent delegations to each other's countries in order to learn from uh, these economic protective measures. How can you overcome sanctions? So in that sense, there's definitely something uh, that can be uh, learned uh, from the dangers of using economic sanctions. And I believe you mentioned this before as well. You write about the first peacetime use of economic pressure by the Allies in 1919 as they blockaded revolutionary communist regimes in Russia and Hungary. How much has communism been the target of economic sanctions from the very start? Well, that's one of the also interesting forgotten episodes in the history of sanctions and arguably the first sanctions use in the aftermath of World War I ever is the blockade of uh, Soviet Russia. And um, I, I say arguably because uh, that was the first time that the blockade was extended uh, against a new country in peacetime. So officially after November 1918, World War I was over, and yet the blockade against Russia persisted until 1920, 1921 by some countries. So um, certainly there was a strong desire at the time uh, to use economic pressure as a, a, a war fighting instrument. But one of the interesting roles here was played by Woodrow Wilson, and he definitely uh, was strongly anti-communist, like many people in, in the Western elite were at the time. And he also added a new objective for sanctions. Uh, before that, sanctions had mainly been used in order to preserve peace and to avoid countries going to war with each other. And that was very much the animating philosophy behind the economic weapon used by the League of Nations. But Wilson introduced this new objective, which was that you could keep a country isolated from global exchange and global commerce until it adopted a form of government that he considered to be civilized and capable of doing business and honoring its commitments with the rest of the world. So Wilson, in a, a sense, was the first American statesman and the first leader around the world to articulate a kind of democratic regime change aim for sanctions. And that's definitely been a, an abiding characteristic of sanctions when they've been used against uh, communist uh, regimes elsewhere. Uh, and of course, they, in by and large, have not really worked. They have tended to strengthen those regimes, make them more repressive, and uh, certainly not turned uh, their, their population most times against uh, their governments, but rather created a kind of siege mentality. Globalization makes nations vulnerable to economic sanctions. Is that the point? Do economic powers coerce smaller nations into globalization so they can be vulnerable to sanctions? Are developing economies coerced into being export-oriented in order to be made vulnerable to economic powers and their sanctions? I would say that uh, there's a variety of reasons why, why smaller countries and, and emerging uh, uh, markets and, and developing countries uh, have to adopt export strategies. And uh, some of these are, are simply uh, 
challenges of, of economic development that uh, already go back to the 19th century. And, and of course, the history of imperialism is a very important formative influence in that process, right? Many of these countries didn't necessarily choose which sectors they were going to become exporters in. Uh, this, these were sectors that were developed by Western investors, and as a result, they became quite dependent on sales to Western markets. I um, haven't really found any proof that the sanctionists themselves wanted to shape countries uh, in, in that regard, uh, but you can certainly see why sanctions have remained so powerful, uh, because one of the most interesting things is that, of course, many developing countries, and particularly countries in uh, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, are relatively export dependent, some more than others, but many of them do for their hard currency and in order to develop, rely on exporting to the global north. And this is one of the things, actually, that the United States itself um, does not have. Uh, the United States is a relatively uh, not so reliant country on on trade, and trade is only a very small part of the American economy in relative terms, and that accounts for some of the uh, re reasons really why the United States has been able to use sanctions so much. It holds a reserve currency that the rest of the world needs to use, but the U.S. economy itself doesn't really suffer that much when the United States deprives other countries of trade, and that makes it relatively unique, uh, and it accounts for why the United States is uh, so easily able to use sanctions, um, and it, relatively speaking, bears a much lower cost than many uh, economies elsewhere in the world. Toward the end of your book, you quote the Norwegian internationalist Christian Lange, who worried in 1933 that, quote, where it was possible to use the threat of Article 16, that's the League of Nations article when it comes to employing economic sanctions, as a preventative of war against small states, there was no possibility of using this threat against powerfully armed states. So how effective are U.S. economic sanctions against, say, individuals within the Russian government or those against uh, alleged oil oligarchs who the U.S. sees as contributing to policies of Vladimir Putin, of which the U.S. does not approve. How effective are those kind of sanctions that are being are targeting powerfully armed states, although the individuals within those countries? Yeah, that's a very good question and, and very much an open one, I think, at the moment, although the evidence that we've seen so far suggests that many of the sanctions are not necessarily that effective when they're imposed across the board. Uh, there are now, uh, of course, new sanctions that have been used, uh, much more targeted on individuals, like you said. And some of those uh, have been quite powerful. Uh, in 2018, uh, the United States actually managed to uh, almost destabilize the entire global uh, aluminum market. Uh, by imposing sanctions on Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch. But that was actually something that they did almost without realizing how powerful these sanctions were. And it had very severe unintended consequences, and they were forced to roll them back. So some of those individual sanctions definitely can work, but they don't ultimately, I think, succeed in their main aim. And that's why it, I would still caution against their use. And their main aim, I imagine, should be to try and actually promote stability in Eastern Europe and to prevent the risk of war uh, in Eastern Europe. And perhaps in addition also to uh, try and make 
Putin's Russia move in a better direction. In that, they have been largely ineffective. And so that's also why I think that countries of the size like Russia that actually do have some of the means to withstand sanctions and also to use their control over gas and oil to retaliate against other parts of the world, particularly Europe and Asia, um, it's important to tread pretty carefully. Um, But ultimately, perhaps the biggest thing to keep in mind is that these sanctions are a punitive tool and the, most of these conflicts cannot be resolved by a force or by pressure. They need to be resolved by diplomacy and negotiation and by trying to actually understand what the underlying causes of conflict are. Uh, the conflict in Ukraine is extremely complex. It has a lot to do with regional politics, uh, with cultural, cultural, political, and social uh, divisions within the country, and uh, a blunt instrument like sanctions imposed from halfway around the world, no matter how fine-grained, is not considered a legitimate intervention in uh, the structure of Russian and Ukrainian politics. And it's it's really uh, hard to imagine how those sorts of pressures by people halfway around the world who um, have quite little understanding of the specific relations on the ground, how that sort of pressure is going to contribute to a solution. I've got one last question for you, Nicholas. Nicholas Mulder is author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. You can follow Nicholas on Twitter at NJT Mulder. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I had a couple of them pre-written, but while you were responding to the last question, I came up with something different. To what extent, you point out how economic sanctions are destabilizing as well as radicalizing, to what extent is the United States potentially right now with sanctions against Afghanistan uh, leading to a further radicalization of political movements within Afghanistan? Is the choice for the United States to concede to the Taliban and open trade with them or face a more radicalized Afghanistan? So I'll, I'll just preface this by saying that I am not an Afghanistan expert, but it does seem to me that the arguments made f- uh, by sanctionists in the American government today for why this pressure should be kept up don't really hold water. Uh, first and foremost, because the original reason for intervening in Afghanistan in 2001 was that the country uh, was weak and poor and ruled by the Taliban, and that it had become a haven, uh, particularly because of its underdevelopment for all sorts of radical uh, Islamist groups. And uh, it seems that if what we're doing right now is uh, starving and uh, depriving Afghanistan of resources in order to punish the Taliban, we are recreating the exact conditions that 20 years ago were used as an argument to intervene. I actually don't think that this will uh, lead to a new intervention, of course, because uh, the US and, and Western countries just withdrew, but re- will be uh, really no better off than uh, when uh, Afghanistan first uh, emerged as an object of intervention in, in, in the late 1990s. So it seems to me really blatantly counterproductive to keep continuing with this policy, as well as, of course, 
inhumane and uh, and an incredible uh, uh, tragedy uh, and, and and burden on, on the Afghan people who've already had to enter so much. But I think that this is the one thing that I'd like to uh, leave your listeners with that sometimes people feel they might feel that um, they uh, when they object to sanctions are merely appealing to hum- humanity or humanitarian motives that this is supposed to be a simply moral or an ethical objection and I think that's a very valid moral and ethical objection but I also uh, think that history shows that sanctions are also just on their own terms more often than not very ineffective so you don't need to choose between being uh, having a moral uh, kind of criticism of sanctions uh, while having to accept that they might sometimes be necessary, most of the time they also don't work. So you can, uh, I think, uh, oppose sanctions uh, on both principled and on uh, utilitarian and efficiency grounds. Uh, and I think that particularly in Afghanistan right now, that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I think that the same can be applied to U.S. sanctions against Venezuela. And you have this really interesting part of your book where you explain how we have the stick of economic sanctions, but we don't have the carrot of offering anything as a benefit to these nations. And I found that very fascinating. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Nicholas Mulder is author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating book. And for those listeners who've been listening since 1997, 1998, when we were talking about uh, economic sanctions in Iraq back then, this is another way for you to have a different understanding and a different perspective of sanctions. So thank you very much, Nicholas. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks very much for having me, Chuck. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If that conversation with Nicholas was in some way enlightening or made you realize that Yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding so far. What would make your life 1% better? This week's question from hell is, what would make your life 1% better? Mason W. says, finding one extra sock in the laundry, but not a pair. <laughs> Neil C. says, taking away the 99% that makes it worse. Braden, right. Braden S. says, no thanks, I'll take the 1% worse. <laughs> Jeff G. says, abolishing the 1%, of course. Uh, Marco G. says, fartless beans. <laughs> And Fabio L. says, a 1% increase in my net value. Very utilitarian there, Fabio. I would not want to have fartless beans. I think that the fart really helps out the whole experience of beaning. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment Jeff's forbidden words for this year are all numbers we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest on the next show email us our next guest I should say email us message us via Facebook or tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and topic suggestions or tell us anything you'd like us to share on the show and we will likely read it on air 
So as you may have heard me mention on the show lately, we are looking for new board operators here on This Is Hell. This is a paid position, but you must live in the Chicago area and be available at least once a week for a couple of hours to do the show, which streams live Monday through Wednesday with an exclusive subscriber-only Patreon podcast on Thursdays, all of which begin at 10 in the morning. If you are interested, again, email us at chuckatthisishell.com and Alex will get you trained up as soon as possible. And just like that, you will be running the board here on This Is Hell. For instance, Lindsay is interested. Lindsay writes, Dear Chuck, I was just listening to This Is Hell. I absolutely love the show. The story about anti-colonial science was right up my alley. I'm a student herbalist and consider myself an anarchist. Respecting indigenous knowledge and spirituality with plant work is very important in my life. I got into herbalism a couple years after being a, or getting a bachelor's in sociology in 2018 and becoming an anti-capitalist. The Great Resignation is also right up my alley. I'm part of it. I've been quitting jobs since before the pandemic, but I quit my job at UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, and then later as an assistant to an herbalist in 2020 because at both a state university and a family business, I was not paid a living wage and not feeling respected. At this moment, I'm wrapping up my first eBay sale, a pair of bronze candelabras I pulled out of the dumpster behind my apartment. I'm making about 75 bucks. I started dumpster diving last summer. I, I get this. I got this radio I'm listening to in my alley. It's also called urban foraging. I forage plants too. I hand make natural soap and other herbal body uh, products. And I'm, I'm also an experimental musician, improvis- improvisational flutist mainly. Where's that flautist? That's now how I'm uh, currently surviving with other gig work I try to minimize. I also organize in food waste with Rogers Park Food Not Bombs. I don't ever apply to jobs, but the board operator opportunity sounds like things I was previously dreaming about. I am in Rogers Park down the street near Devon and Greenview. It sounds so great I might volunteer if I had time, but it especially sounds great that you pay. I absolutely need a flexible job, so I would be extremely grateful for the opportunity. As an experimental musician with no money, I can't even believe how lucky it would be to learn about, um, learn more about sound production and have access to a studio. I would also be interested in working on a podcast to share my interests, dumpster diving, and the social and environmental dimensions of it. I love the radio. I thought I'd heard This Is Hell first on Lumpen Radio. My friend does a music show on Lumpen, and I've been really interested in getting into radio since getting to know her and learning more about it. As an improviser, I love the spontaneity of hearing important things on radio programs like spontaneously hearing about this opportunity. I'm very flexible. I only do gig work lately, so I could work the board multiple times a week or occasionally. I will attach my CV, which has info on my academic past, which I updated recently. I could come in whenever it is convenient for you if you'd like to meet in person. Thanks so much for reading this and for making the show. I look forward to hearing from you and listening to more stories. Best wishes, Lindsay. So the interview that Lindsay begins talking about is the about uh, anti-colonial science. That was a conversation we had with geoscientist Max Liboiron, who wrote the Nature article, Decolonizing Geoscience Requires More Than Equity and Inclusion, which, despite being one of our last interviews of 2021, actually made our listeners' best of 2021 list and was replayed over the holidays. That conversation helped me in recognizing the ongoing colonialism that I mentioned earlier this week when it came to the Detroit Free Press article over the holidays covering the ongoing practice of non-Indigenous grave digging in Indigenous burial sites. 
On Food Not Bombs, they do fantastic work in feeding people for free. And if you are in Rogers Park and looking to get into activism, feeding people for free and not getting paid for it, that's a really good start. Especially according to Kathy Kelly from Voices in the Wilderness, who suggested that's what we do if you're looking to get into activism. So, Lindsay, if you are listening, I forwarded your information on to Alex, and we are currently in the process of replying to everyone who has shown interest in being a board op here on This Is Hell in 2022. Dan H. also emailed us at Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com expressing interest in being a board operator on the show. Dan writes, Hi, Chuck. I've been a fan of This Is Hell since catching it on the radio, uh, Lumpen radio stream after moving to Rogers Park in 2019. I heard your call for board operators at the top of your David Dian interview about how workers are quitting in droves here under late capitalism. I'm in this position myself, having quit my soul-crushing tech support job over the summer. I worked a stint as a bike mechanic since then, but have again found myself between opportunities. I would love to help bring This Is Hell to the masses as a board operator. I worked the board at the community radio station WRFU in Urbana a few years back doing a radio show. I like vintage audio gear and I'm sure I would be a quick study on the specifics involved in producing the show. It's easy for me to get to the studio on the 155 bus or my bike. I would be excited to start out the new year helping out with this great resource. And by the way, uh, Dan, Dan says, thanks for considering, Dan. By the way, Dan, if you are into vintage audio gear, then working our board is right up here, alley. It's so weird to me that someone who lives, not just Dan, but others, uh, I believe Lindsay said the same thing, uh, someone who lives only a mile or two from our studio who is not in range of Lumpen Radio's very small over-the-air broadcast area, who is in range of WNUR's very large broadcast area, would find out about the show from... Lumpen. It reveals a lot about how influential and respected all things Lumpen are. And coming up in 2022, there will be an edition of the magazine, the print magazine that is edited by our correspondent in Brazil, Telesur English's, uh, our correspondent in Brazil, Telesur English's Brian Muir, which includes contributions from not only me on the history of This Is Hell, but also writing by Jeff Dorchin, who contributes a moment of truth here on This Is Hell every week. Dan, like Lindsay, I've forwarded your information on to Alex, who will be contacting you shortly. If you are interested in starting the new year with a new gig as a board operator here on This Is Hell, email us at chuck at thisishell.com, and we will set the gears in motion. Alex, who is our next guest on this week's upcoming show? Yeah, tomorrow, Wednesday, we're going to talk with Aaron Van Singen about his Uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World, A Journey Through British Columbia, this November showed how fragile the economy really is. And I really recommend Uneven Earth, one of my favorite sites uh, to look for a story. So that's unevenearth.org. And plus Jeff Dorchin. And Jeff's moment, or in a moment of truth, Jeff's forbidden words for this year are all numbers. Thanks to today's guest, Nicholas Mulder is author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. You can follow Nicholas on Twitter at N as in Nancy, J-T as in Thomas, Mulder, M-U-L-D-E-R. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. 
For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.